It was yet another rainy night on March 22nd, 1997, and Stitch, a 31-year-old heroin addict, was cruising the streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver, BC. She slowly walked along the sidewalk, keeping an eye out for her next date. She was looking for a fix, and she was willing to do anything to get it. She tried to ignore the aching in her muscles and the throbbing in her head, symptoms from her heroin withdrawal. As she stepped over a puddle, she eyed a huddled group of homeless men sharing a crack pipe. This was not unusual. The downtown east side was no stranger to addiction, poverty, prostitution, and crime. In the early 20th century, the downtown east side was the hub of commerce, finance, and politics in Vancouver. When the Great Depression hit and the unemployed masses stayed for the cheap housing and even cheaper beer, it began a series of events that eventually saw the city center shift away from what was becoming Vancouver's skid row. Hard drugs eventually flooded the streets, and in the aftermath of the AIDS epidemic, the downtown east side saw the opening of North America's first safe injection site and needle exchange, a project that, to this day, remains controversial. Stitch heard the rumbling of a pickup truck pull up behind her. The window rolled down and the man behind the wheel propositioned her. Stitch asked him where they would go and the man said that he lived in Port Coquitlam, a suburb on the outskirts of the city. Stitch was hesitant, but the man assured her that they would be back in an hour and a half and that he would pay her $100 for her trouble. Stitch opened the door to the pickup truck and climbed in. After making their journey through the city, they eventually arrived at the man's farm in Pork Coquitlam. After unlocking the front gate, they made their way up the driveway and past the wrecked cars and junk that littered the property. Off in the distance, Stitch could see a tall barn peeling red paint, and a single floodlight above its door. The truck came to a halt in front of a trailer, and Stitch followed the man through the front door. As they walked past the kitchen, Stitch saw a large butcher knife sitting next to a pile of dirty dishes, empty beer cans, and the dirt that covered nearly every surface. The man directed her to a room, and as she peered inside, she saw that the room was completely barren, save for a ratty sleeping bag and a clear sheet of plastic that covered the door. After their time in the room, Stitch told the man that she needed to use his phone. She wanted to call her boyfriend to tell him where she was, and that she was on her way back. She walked into the other room and bent over the table where 
she began flipping through a phone book. As she searched for the number of her hotel room, she felt the hairs on the back of her neck stand up. She turned around and saw the man standing behind her. He raised his hand and began caressing her arm. In an instant, he slapped a handcuff on her wrist and she pulled away, screaming. They began wrestling with each other as the man tried to restrain her. In a moment of clarity, Stitch remembered the knife in the kitchen. She elbowed the man in the stomach and made a break for it, but the moment she grabbed the knife, the man tackled her and the two fell to the ground. Stitch fought for her life as the two grappled with each other on the floor. Eventually, Stitch managed to fight the man off long enough to escape the trailer. As she ran through the driveway, she felt a warm liquid running down her stomach. She had been stabbed during the struggle. When she finally reached the road, she saw a pair of headlights coming towards her, and she raised her arms, screaming for their help. The middle-aged couple driving the car immediately called an ambulance who took Stitch to the nearby Royal Columbian Hospital. The man, meanwhile, got in his truck and, in a twisted turn of fate, drove himself to the very same hospital. While he was being treated for the multiple stab wounds inflicted on him by Stitch, an orderly found a key in his pocket. It opened the handcuff that was still attached to Stitch's wrist. After a very brief RCMP investigation, the man was charged with attempted murder as well as three other offenses. But when the Crown Prosecutor learned of Stitch's past history as a prostitute and a drug user, the charges were dropped, believing that a successful conviction would be unlikely. Stitch, a survivor at heart, who despite being stabbed and her throat slashed, made a full recovery, but the man was free to return to his farm, and it wouldn't be long before he returned to the downtown east side. Stitch never knew at the time, but she had just escaped from the clutches of Canada's most prolific serial killer. And it wouldn't be until five years later, in February of 2002, that the world would learn of his name and the crimes he committed on his farm. His name was Robert William Picton, and with the ever-decaying downtown east side as his hunting ground, his twisted crimes would come to bring shame to an entire nation. I'm Taryn Gorbon, and this is Monograph. Robert Picton, or Willie, as he was known by friends and family, was born on October 26, 1949, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. He was the second of three children born to Leonard and Helen Louise Picton. When the family was forced to move from their farm in 1963, 
The Pictons purchased a swampy 40-acre plot of land for $18,000, where they began raising pigs. His bizarre childhood would set the stage for the macabre life he would go on to lead. As a kid, he was known to crawl inside the gutted pig carcasses in the farm's slaughterhouse in order to hide from his abusive father's drunken tirades. While he feared his father, he had a particular admiration for his mother, Helen Louise, and he would often be called a mama's boy and taunted because of it. Life on the pig farm was tough, and on one occasion, he was badly mauled by a boar that roamed the farm. Willie was a farm boy at heart, and he followed in his father's and his grandfather's and his great-grandfather's footsteps, learning the ways of the family business. When he was 12, he was given a young calf by his parents to take care of. Willie loved his new pet and took his responsibility very seriously. Willie would feed him and play with him. He would even sleep with him at night. Willie would dream of keeping the calf for the rest of his life, raising him big and strong. One day, after he returned home from school, Willie went looking for his calf, but he couldn't find him. After frantically searching the farm, his mother told him to look in the barn. Willie found his beloved calf hanging upside down on a meat hook, cleaned out and butchered. Willie was furious with his family and wouldn't speak to them for four days, vehemently refusing their offer to buy him a new calf with the profits from the meat. Willie didn't want another calf, though. He wanted that one. Picton was enrolled in his school's special ed classes, and as a result of his refusal to shower or wear clean clothes, he didn't have many friends. He dropped out of school when he was 15 and found a job as a meat cutter, but eventually quit to work full-time on the family farm. In 1978, Willie's father died, and his mother passed away a year later after a four-month battle with cancer. Their children inherited the farm, which had become prime real estate and was quickly rising in value. The 40-acre property, which was originally purchased for $18,000, was appraised by the siblings in 1994, and they were told that it was valued at $7.2 million. Later that fall, they sold a chunk of the farm to a townhouse development company for $1.7 million, and that same year, the city of Port Coquitlam coughed up $1.2 million in order to build a new park. Their final land deal was with the school district, who spent $2.3 million on a parcel of land on which they'd go on to build Blackburn Elementary School. Picton was a multi-millionaire, but he looked anything but. He was still just as grubby and unkempt as he always was. His older sister, Linda, had long moved away from the farm to lead a separate life, but Willie and his younger brother, Dave, remained on the farm. Dave was the more assertive and responsible of the two. He had a knack for numbers and ran the business side of the farm, while Willie 
would raise and butcher the pigs. The brothers would later start P&B used building materials, a salvaging company which they operated in Surrey, BC. In 96, Dave moved to a property down the road where he and his brother converted an old slaughterhouse into the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. The Piggy Palace was a party hall and a non-profit organization that was, quote, dedicated to raising money for sports organizations, charities, and other worthy groups, unquote. The two bought an expensive sound system and lights and began hosting benefits and birthday parties for what seemed like half of Pork Coquitlam. But the Piggy Palace had a double life. At night, it would play host to wild parties with hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. Willie would roast one of his pigs over an open bonfire, ripping it apart with his bare hands. Visitors would recall the anarchy, the booze, the drugs, the drunks, and the hookers. The city of Port Coquitlam tried and failed several times to stop the brothers from throwing their parties at the Piggy Palace. In 1996, the city tried to get a court order, but the judge refused to sign it. Finally, in 1998, the city obtained an injunction, but still, the brothers continued to throw their parties. The Piggy Palace eventually closed in 2000 for failing to file annual financial statements. While Dave went on to start a construction company, continuing his entrepreneurial streak, Willie began inviting people to live and work on his farm. Many of them were former and current drug addicts, and Picton offered them a place to stay and a job to keep them busy. He saw himself as their protector, and it was not uncommon for Willie to be manipulated out of hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, women had begun disappearing from the downtown east side. The women were in the survival sex trade, selling their bodies on the street in order to support a drug habit. They lived on the fringes of society, and when they vanished, often no one noticed. Occasionally, beat cops would remember a face they hadn't seen in a while, but without a fixed address or the discovery of a body, there was no crime to investigate. When they would voice their concerns to higher-ups in the police department, they'd often be dismissed or outright laughed out of the room. Still, there were those within the VPD that were searching for the women and chasing down leads. Like Constable Dave Dixon, he was a B-cop on the downtown east side, and he had been keeping track of the women who were vanishing, seemingly without a trace. He would visit women's shelters and ask around the streets, but to no avail. Constable Dixon knew that several of the women would pick up their social assistance checks at St. James Social Services, but would only learn that their files had been closed after they failed to pick up their checks. Very few of the women who disappeared from the downtown east side had people in their lives who cared about them. Sarah DeVries, on the other hand, had Wayne Lang. 
Sarah was 28 years old and, like so many others who vanished without a trace, struggled with drug addiction and worked the streets to support her habit. Wayne was a patron of Sarah's services and had fallen deeply in love with her. When she went missing on April 14, 1998, it was Wayne who reported her disappearance to the Vancouver Police Department. The VPD, however, refused to file his report because he was not a family member. After contacting Sarah's sister, Maggie, the two successfully filed a report and Wayne built a website, started a tip line, and set out on a massive poster campaign in the downtown east side. Meanwhile, on the Picton farm, some of Willie's guests were beginning to find strange things on the property. Lisa Yelds was a close associate of Picton and would occasionally clean for him. While she was cleaning out his filthy trailer, Lisa found bloody clothing, several purses, and the identification of as many as ten different women. When she questioned Willie about it, he shrugged it off, saying it wasn't important and to burn it. Perhaps more disturbing than Lisa Yeld's discovery was Andy Bellwood's far more personal encounter with Robert Picton. Andy Bellwood moved to the farm in February of 1999 He had just finished a six-month rehabilitation program for heroin addiction. Willie offered him a room and would find odd jobs on the farm to keep him busy. The two formed a fast friendship, but a month after his arrival on the farm, their relationship took a darker turn. It was a quiet evening, and Andy Bellwood was watching TV in his room when he received a visit from Willie Pickton. He entered the room and sat on the corner of the bed. Willie asked Andy if he wanted to go into town and pick up a hooker. Andy refused, but Willie persisted. Come on, Andy, let's get a hooker, let's get a hooker. Andy continued to refuse his offer and kept his eyes fixed on the television in front of him. A sly smile crept across Picton's face as he said, Hey, Andy. Do you know what I do with hookers? Andy watched as Willie stood up and showed him three items. A leather belt, a piece of wire, and a pair of handcuffs. He climbed onto the bed and onto his knees, spreading them apart, pretending that a woman lay beneath him. He began stroking the imaginary woman's hair, and using his left hand, he grabbed the woman's arm, and with his right, he put on the handcuffs. Reaching for the leather belt, he pretended to put it around the woman's neck and strangle her. As he stroked her hair, he whispered that it was all going to be over soon, and that everything would be alright. When he finished his bizarre performance, He sat back down on the corner of the bed and stared at Andy intently. Do you know how much people bleed? You wouldn't believe how much people bleed. Andy stared in disbelief as Willie told him. After that, I take him to the barn, hang him, 
and got him. Willie could sense that Andy was not going to play along and quickly changed the subject. Four days later, Andy received a visit from two of Picton's friends. They accused him of stealing equipment from Willie's trailer, and after a sucker punch that sent him tumbling to the ground, the two gave him a beating that sent a very clear message. Andy was not to open his mouth about that night with Willie. Andy took the hint and boarded the next ferry to Victoria, where he never looked back. Of all the people who stayed on the farm as one of Picton's guests and lived to tell the tale, it was Lynn Ellingson who had what could be called the most terrifying. Lynn Ellingson was hired by Picton to work as a quasi-secretary on the decrepit farm. She was addicted to crack cocaine, and with the money from her new job, her addiction was quickly spiraling out of control. It wasn't long after Andy Bellwood fled the farm that Lynn Ellingson went with Willie to cruise the downtown east side. They pulled the dirty pickup truck next to a prostitute who, at first, was hesitant when the two invited her to join them on the farm. After Ellingson told her that that's where she was staying, the woman agreed to come with them. She jumped in the truck, and after a quick stop to buy booze and drugs, the three made the drive to Porco Quitlam. The two women were smoking crack when Willie Picton joined them in the living room of the trailer. He wondered aloud which one of the women he was going to sleep with first, and the woman and Willie departed for his room. Lynn smoked some more crack and then went into her own room to lay down. After several hours, the numbness of the cocaine wearing off, she left her room. She walked towards Willie's room, expecting to hear something, anything, but the trailer was silent. As she pushed the door open, she saw there was no sign of Willie but Ellingson could see the woman's clothes lying on the floor. Through the window, she could see that the light above the barn had been turned on. With the knot in her stomach growing tighter, she left the trailer and began walking towards the barn. The wind howled as she slowly walked past the wrecked cars and junk that littered the driveway, drawing closer and closer to the light that hung above the barn door. She pushed on it, and it creaked open. And she saw the woman hanging on a meat hook. She had been drained, gutted, and butchered. Suddenly, she felt a hand cover her mouth as Picton pulled her inside and shoved her next to a table in the corner. Ellingson's entire body froze as Willie told her that if she said anything about what she saw, she would be right up there beside her. Lynn was in shock, but she managed to mutter that she wouldn't tell a soul, and that all she needed was money for drugs. 
Lynn left the barn that night with her life, but she would never forget her gruesome discovery. As the list of missing women from the downtown east side grew, the Vancouver Police Department finally began taking the issue seriously. After years of denying that the women were victims of foul play or that a serial killer was stalking the streets of the downtown east side, the VPD and the RCMP created a joint task force dubbed Project Evenhanded in September of 2001. The task force was responsible for reviewing every file on the missing women, and before long, a list of possible suspects was compiled. Men who had been convicted or charged with crimes against sex workers. Picton was on this list, but he was just one name among hundreds more. As the task force continued their investigation, they received a tip, unrelated to the missing women, that broke the entire case wide open. Scott Chubb was an employee who worked on the farm, and he told police about unlicensed firearms on the Picton farm. He hoped to receive a cash reward for his tip, but Chubb had growing suspicions of his own. Willie had offhandedly told him that a good way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with window washing fluid. Unnerved by their conversation, Chubb contacted the police and told them about an unregistered rifle that Willie kept in his trailer. With an eyewitness account, investigators finally obtained a search warrant for the farm, and on February 5th, 2002, the police conducted an extensive search of the Picton farm, and nothing could have prepared them for the horrors they were about to uncover. Police found severed heads, body parts, bones, and teeth scattered over the property, along with the DNA of 33 missing women from the downtown east side. Not a single body was found intact, and it is widely believed that Willie used an old wood chipper to dispose of the bodies and fed the remains to his pigs. Robert William Picton was arrested and charged on February 7, 2002. His brutal reign of terror had come to an unsatisfying end, and the mystery of women disappearing from the downtown east side was finally solved. For many, though, the real work was just beginning. While an extensive search and excavation of the Picton farm was conducted, Willie was placed in a cell with an undercover officer. His job was to get Willie talking, and boy, did Willie talk. The jail cell video would later become crucial evidence in his trial. In it, Willie can be heard admitting to a staggering 49 murders, mentioning that he wanted to commit just one more so that he could bring it up to 50. Willie's trial began in early 2007, five years after the details of his crimes first emerged. He was tried for the murders of 26 women, and the judge, in a wildly unpopular move, separated the trial, believing it would be too confusing for a jury. 
Willie was found guilty in the murders of six women and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the harshest sentence possible under Canadian law. There is no denying that Robert Pickton is a monster. The systematic way in which he stalked and murdered women from the downtown east side can only be described as such. And as much as we remember Willie Pickton, his scraggly beard, unkempt hair, and lifeless eyes, we need to remember the ones that lost their lives on the farm. The ones that we know about, and the ones that we don't. We need to remember them and remind ourselves that our society failed them. And we need to do more so that we can make sure that this never happens again. Monograph was written and produced by Taryn Gorbon with music by Aurorin Daydream. Thank you for listening.